I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending January 23rd. Lars Rieger is CTO of NXP. We have a conversation with Rieger about how companies have adapted to managing workers in this new work-at-home era. Intel is widely considered in need of a makeover, and it just made a surprise announcement that it has hired a new CEO. Where might prodigal son Pat Gelsinger take the chip giant? We'll talk about that with Jim McGregor, a former Intel engineer who is now a principal analyst with Tirius Research. Finally, a conversation with Chet Babla, the vice president of the automotive business at Arm. My colleague Junko Yoshida talks to him about one of the hottest new markets in the electronics industry. There weren't any mega mergers in the electronics industry this week, but there was some news. On his way out of office, Donald Trump tried to escalate his trade war with China one last time by reportedly barring a few more companies from doing business with Huawei. Will his actions muddle things further? The new administration has not made it obvious what will happen next. Other subjects recently covered in EE Times include... There's a company in South Korea called Doosan Mobility Innovation that is using drones powered with hydrogen fuel cells. IBM expects scientific discovery can be accelerated. The idea is that with advances in AI and quantum computing, we'll be able to reduce the time we waste on trial and error. The world's largest and most advanced foundry is TSMC. It recently announced that it is increasing its budget for capital expenditures. We explore why and how. Looking at TSMC's planning gives us an indirect glimpse into the entire industry's future. Find those and other stories at www.eetimes.com. As of 2019, I had had it up to here with trend stories about telecommuting. It's the next big thing for big business, until it wasn't. Or, it was great for small and medium-sized businesses, but it didn't seem to be. Or, here's a company that tried it and why it didn't work, when it was clearly working for some companies. It was all tedious and tiresome because it really was not that big of a deal. And then the pandemic hit. And a few short months later, telecommuting now is our way of life all around the globe. But that doesn't mean everyone has overcome all the challenges, nor figured out how much of telecommuting is permanent and how much is temporary. We know NXP's Lars Rieger has been thinking about it because we interviewed him in the first half of 2020, and it was already on his mind then. Recently, my colleague Junko Yoshida called him up again to find out what he's learned about managing a company when hardly anybody comes into the office anymore. You can't start any conversation these days with any executives about how you're dealing with pandemic, right? And I want to distill the message to the point that there are a lot of things I think you have changed in the way you do business. And what do you see as certain things you think that are going to stick. In other words, that you probably want to, you you have never tried this before, you tried it, it worked well, what are the things that you're gonna stick to it? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I could now now talk for an hour, uh, uh, of course, on so for the first time when 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 we all suddenly were in home office, the fear was of course that we are dropping big time in productivity and performance. The opposite was the case, very much to our uh, uh, surprise and excitement. So our people started taping out chips from uh, 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 living rooms in India, US, and Germany. And that was, we had funny pictures even where, where, where dad was sitting here in, in front of his PC simulating and the kids were painting pictures in the back of the, of the living room. I mean, these type of things. So we thought we are dropping in, in productivity. We did not because no one was commuting to work. No one was, uh, was traveling. So even guys like Lars, always on the plane, are, are uh, constantly reachable. That was a great learning that we had. Now, the downside that we see is we see still in our surveys that people are reporting now over one year that they are challenged by work-life balance issues. So it is, an, it is a mistake to assume that only because Lars doesn't have to travel anymore, Lars is less worn out. Because for some, so I, I needed to develop my own hygienics. So fortunately, my wife is a general practitioner. She's going to work, uh, to in vaccinations at the moment, yeah, uh, every day. But of course. Every, every, every morning, 7.30, she's leaving the house. And what I did is every morning, 7.45, I was in my running shoes for a run. I mean, we talked about it the last time and I, 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 I told you, right? Mm -hmm. So I slimmed down seven kilos over the last year and run uh, 2,000 kilometers, but that was my daily routine. And then I got stuck in front of my machine here for 10 hours. If I would have, I, later in the evening, that was always open end. Yeah, I never would have gone to the treadmill uh, in the evening. Forget it. So I had my, my own... Uh, daily start of the day uh, 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 mental uh, uh, hygienics. You said you are walking every every morning as well, uh, uh, long long distance. Uh, yep. uh, I remember, and some of our guys didn't do that. And then what happens is the following: you get up in the morning and say, "I just want to read the news." You get stuck in front of your email, breakfast, lunch, dinner in front of your PC, back to bed. Next morning you wake up with the same problems again that you that you had carried to bed. And you're completely worn out after a short period of time. We didn't have that in the past because, okay, Junko comes in and says, hey, Lars, let's go for a coffee uh, or, hey, let's meet at the canteen. So I was, you know, you're constantly out. Your kids are going to school. You have these phases of your day where, where your brain is, 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 is not used. Yeah? <laughs> you're just moving your body from A to B. And this is what is very, very different now. So we have to develop differently, uh, different daily routines. Okay. But overall, the five things that we learned is we should focus more on working anywhere and working anytime. I mean, this is not, not necessarily compliant with workers' council regulations, right? Uh, so as a German, I will be very careful, you know, what I'm saying. But um, a lot of the younger population, especially, feels enormously attracted by companies who say, Junko, you don't have to be in the Bay Area with obscene uh, uh, house prices in a 60 square meter flat with your two kids and, and they are peeling uh, off the wallpaper while you are working. No, they go countryside, but work anytime, anywhere and still being part of the company and being productive. Enormously important. Then the third thing what I've uh, learned is some companies here are talking about digital by default. So when Junko and Lars meet and Junko and Lars are in the same company, the meeting is digital by default. And last, give me a very, very good reason that you should hop on the plane now to visit Junko in Paris for a one-day workshop and fly back again. Let's not do that, but let's take that money, smart idea, 
and move that money into uh, uh, into employee training or upgrading of home offices, or I give you a voucher for your for your uh, digital bandwidth and so on. Um, then what we need to learn is, I mean, some of the companies are, Junko, you're coming in at nine and you're leaving at five. And if you're leaving at four, you have a problem because you didn't fulfill your working hours. Of course, I have to manage that differently. And I have to say, hey, Junko, I give you a target. And for me, it was not, not disruptive because I could anyhow not manage 1,500 people uh, by saying, I stand behind you and I watch what you're doing. Yeah, But, but uh, I give you a target and, and I don't care where and when and how you achieve that as long as I get the answer back in time. So I, I, I had this as a very successful model. Uh, and where did it come from? Look at, at, at ladies like Birgit. Yeah, having a little little kid at home, uh, and she said, "Last, I can only work 30 hours a week." Uh, and and is it a problem for you if you get the the slides for your next keynote tomorrow morning at uh, uh, at, at 5 a.m.? Uh, but tonight uh, the little one is ill. I have to care, and I can only work on it after after he's asleep. Yeah, of course, no problem, not at all. I mean, give me the stuff when when when, and, and I don't care when and how you achieve it. So, in other words, I have to manage by goals, and I as a manager have to make that mental move. And maybe the the uh, last idea in that is, of course, I have to be trained to do home office. One year, so my, my, my first business trip last year when we started uh, the lockdowns that I did not do was to a uh, European car OEM and I had to cancel that. They insisted initially, when they were not used to the lockdown, they insisted that I have to travel there because that was the right level of respect. The supplier comes to the customer uh, and they were, I mean, what was under underneath that was they had no clue how to efficiently do video conferences. In the meantime, we all know how to do that. And suddenly everyone says, hey, Lars, you know what? We have to dial in three or four people from three or four different sites. You should pro uh, probably do the same. Can you please uh, uh, set up a video call. So also getting literate, digitally literate, uh, I would say that is number five. And that is the, the five commandments that might stay and that will uh, make Greta Thunberg becoming my friend because I'm saving loads of carbon dioxide with that. Because yeah, just imagine what a normal business traveler is pumping out in 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 in, in uh, tons of carbon dioxide uh, uh, every year uh, uh, doing these these trans transatlantic or or, or intercontinental uh, moves. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, plus, by the way, my efficiency, of course, uh, in, in in increases big time. Yeah. And the question is, what is the purpose of megacities in future? One of our Macom ladies asked me last, can you please elaborate on how that are megacities? And I said, what do you exactly mean? She said, look, just imagine everyone is in the countryside because you can work everywhere at every time. Now, why should the, maybe the yuppies want to be in the in, in the mega cities to be closer to the opera or to the posh uh, cafe, uh, uh, cafe or to, uh, to better stores? But shopping is online experience in the meantime. People are living in the countryside. Quality of life is higher in the countryside. Um, why should I pay obscene prices just to be closer to an office that I anyhow don't need anymore? Right. The thing that we cannot achieve, Junko, is these type of things like at CES, meeting 600 customers in four days. Yeah. Uh, so so the, uh, the anniversary of your classmates, basically, these type of things. You know each other, but you want to update and say, hey, Junko, uh, which, with which company are you now? So, so these 
this stuff and really relaxing, free brainstorming over a good glass of wine. Maybe we will travel more for those quality networking events in future mm -hmm. rather than for I, supplier, have to come to you, customer, just to show my respect. One word of caution. We have proven, we industry companies, that we can work when everyone is in the office. We also have proven now for more than a year that we can work when no one is in the office. I do not know yet how it will be when some of us are in the office. So will there be again social pressure, peer pressure? Uh, you know, you have the inner circle in the office and the and the and the cut of satellites somewhere uh, away. Um, we definitely also need to define hygienic rules uh, because uh, so what what is our common day in the office for for me and my direct team? Because otherwise, I mean, I can avoid my employees or my employees can avoid me. Yeah, last is there Monday, Tuesday. I'm there Friday, uh, Thursday, Friday, so that we never see each other. I mean. Of course, we need to work on these on these additional ground rules, hygienic rules for hybrid workplaces. That was NXP CTL Lars Rieger with EE Times Global Editor Junko Yoshida. Junko distilled Rieger's advice for an article that you can find on our website. The headline is NXP Drafts Pandemic-Based Five Commandments. There's a link directly to the story on this podcast webpage. Otherwise, you can search for it at www.eetimes.com. Every company has to change and adapt with new technology, new competition, and new markets. Intel is no different in that regard. It's hit several inflection points in its history, but it's still around because it's been, at minimum, adequately savvy about changing and adapting when it had to. Most Intel watchers agree that the company is at another inflection point right now. It has new competitive challenges, it needs to find more new markets, and it has to figure out how to compensate for recent stumbles in manufacturing operations. The company has been led for the last couple of years by Bob Swan, who's done a good enough job steering the chip giant but it was quite clear that he didn't want the job in the first place. He only agreed to become interim CEO and reluctantly kept the top job when Intel's board couldn't find another acceptable candidate. Last week, more or less out of the blue, Intel announced that Swan would be succeeded by Pat Gelsinger in February. Gelsinger had a pretty distinguished career at Intel, and he'd made it to chief technical officer and then left in 2009. For the last eight years, he's been the CEO of VMware. We ran one article written by Junko Yoshida, who said one of Intel's biggest mistakes in recent years has been a lack of a coherent succession strategy. We ran another article, this one by Tyrius research analyst Jim McGregor, in which he argued that welcoming back Gelsinger is a great maneuver by Intel. I asked Jim to go over Gelsinger's career for us. Pat did come up through the ranks as an engineer, uh, eventually to become C, uh, CTO, both under Craig Barrett and under Paul Odellini for a period of time. Mm -hmm. um, he, you know, I've worked with him more actually as an analyst and an outside person than anything else. And I've really gotten to know him. You know, he, he was the one that really le uh, led uh, the development of the Intel Developer Forum. Um, and he also was one of the ones that was key in pushing some of the R&D projects and some of the technology developments that Intel was developing uh, throughout his tenure, especially as CTO. 
Well, he was involved early on with the 386 and then also the 486, right? Uh, yes. So pretty. Uh, so so he's got um, some some bona fide technical chops. Um, also clearly ambitious. He was cl- climbing the ladder and uh, and reportedly openly ambitious. He wasn't being he wasn't being shy about his ambition, right? No, he wasn't. And you have to remember that, you know, when he started, he started under Andy Grove. And Mm. uh, I worked there at that time, too. And, you know, even under Craig Barrett, that whole era really instilled a a level of confidence in you if you worked under those individuals. Mm. You know, you wanted to be successful. Uh, More than anything, those are the type of people, you know, the early pioneers of our industry that really communicate a vision for the industry. And, you know, and he continued that when he became CTO and through IDF, you know, using that as a platform to communicate a vision for the industry, where technology should go, where the industry should go. Yeah. Well, and then 2009, I think it was, rolls around. Um, uh, he leaves the company, uh, picks a, to, you know, accepts a, um, a job offer at EMC, uh, eventually slides over to, to VMware and uh, becomes the CEO there. And, and he's been there ever since. So he's been away from Intel for a while. Um, is, that, um, is that a plus or a minus? Or what, you know, do, do you lose track of what happens at your old place? Do you lose track of the vision if you're not dealing with, with the technology day to day for 10 years? Oh, absolutely not. First off, Intel uh, was a key partner for VMware and mm-hmm. obviously EMC. So I don't think he ever lost vision or even contact with Intel because of that. <laughs> but if anything, I think it's a plus for him. I mean, that was always, uh, I think, a struggle for the board at Intel. You know, it was always a belief that you hire within, you bring up within and everything else. But the problem is, is when you do that with CEOs, and we saw this with BK, uh, we also saw this with Odellini, especially BK. I think BK kind of... And when you say BK, you're saying Brian Kranich. Yeah, he's brought up in um, that vision mm-hmm. that was created by others. Mm-hmm. He's brought in that uh, culture that was created by others. Mm-hmm. And you, when you do that, sometimes you fail to see some of the limitations mm-hmm. of the environment around you. You know, sometimes that culture can really hold you back. And sometimes, you know, that vision should change with times in the market. You know, Intel, like any other large tech company, whether you're talking about Apple, Google, whoever, Mm -hmm. you know, they've all missed opportunities because they were so focused on where they were driving the market that they didn't see the change in the market. Mm -hmm. You know, now at least Pat's had an opportunity to be outside. Um, he's always been, I, I would call a visionary, mm. but now being outside and seeing, especially seeing the software side, which is critical to every platform, uh, especially when you get to AI, you start, you know, at least he's got a vision, uh, that's a much broader vision than I think, you know, he would have had if he was still, or only worked at Intel. Yeah. So the best of both worlds. So let's talk about Intel instead of Pat. So in Intel in that 10 years, um, what happened to the company? Um, uh, not <laughs> what happened to the company, what occurred, <laughs> what was going on, you know, in the industry, how was Intel fitting into it? 
Um, I think a lot of people feel that uh, that Intel has stumbled of late. Um, is that uh, is that uh, in your estimation? Is that an, uh, a a a justifiable view of what's been going on, and uh, and where could it go next? Well, definitely, you know, and I kind of liken it to when Paul Olini took over. Mm-hmm. At that period of time, Intel was trying to expand in everything, especially communications. But they had fallen behind on their core competency in the x86. And they were facing a huge challenge from AMD there with the transition to 64-bit instruction sets. You know, very much now, Intel is facing a resurgent AMD that's rapidly gaining market share. Um, And also, Intel's facing issues with its other core competencies, especially manufacturing. You know, Intel for the last three generations has had difficulty uh, getting its manufacturing ramped up Mm. to the point uh, to where it can actually do it. And it's actually even, you can argue whether or not it's on par or falling behind a little bit, but it definitely doesn't have its lead in manufacturing technology it once had. Mm. But the biggest thing over the past 10 years that I think Intel has really struggled with is expanding its TAM. You know, the PC market. You know, now it's a mature market. It's not going to grow at the rates it used to. Um, Servers are doing phenomenal. Mm -hmm. um, And there's opportunities, you know, Intel's been trying to expand the networking and there's huge opportunities there. But, you know, and it's having some successes. But you think about its expansion into mobile and other consumer electronics and stuff like this. And they really haven't been successful in expanding that TAM into new markets. And they've missed some opportunities. Um, I mean, they, they really were the first ones out there with a tablet and had a huge opportunity to maybe extend that into mobile and smartphones and everything else, and they just missed it mm. uh, for a variety of reasons. Some of it was software, some of it was timing, some of it was manufacturing technology. You know, there are a lot of reasons. But that is, I think, the greatest challenge is Intel is, you know, like a lot of tech leaders in our past, whether it's RCA, IBM, Motorola, they're standing on that cliff where they're still a leader, mm. but if they don't find that new direction and you know match where the market's going to go, then they fall back into obscurity or disappear altogether. Well, one of the things that you've uh, one of the words you've used consistently in describing Pat Gelsinger is visionary. Um, yes. Uh, so it sounds like about the right time to get a visionary in at Intel. Um, What's uh, has he given any indication over ab- about where he sees the overall industry going? And, uh, you know, uh, has he said anything at VMware that suggests that uh, uh, that he sees a particular direction in the electronics industry? Um, are there obvious things that Intel should be doing that he's likely to, to uh, encourage them to keep doing or doing better? Well, I think the obvious investment right up front um, is AI, mm-hmm. you know, AI and everything and the AI everywhere. So I think you're going to continue to see Intel make huge investments there, and he's going to push them to do that. Um, and obviously execution is going to be a key thing as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of his or, you know, the change in Intel strategy right now is being pushed by investors. Mm-hmm. You know, they're looking for, quote, strategic alternatives, unquote. Um, I don't think they're going to be necessarily satisfied with 
all of the changes. You know, I don't expect that Pat's going to try to spin off the manufacturing and I don't think it's really good time for it. Mm. You don't spin off your manufacturing when you're capacity constrained. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you, you do it when you have excess capacity. One of the questions that's come up about Gelsinger's returning to Intel is, is he really what the company needs? Does Intel need an engineer or does it need someone who comes out of business and finance? Here's what Jim had to say about that. You could argue in Intel's history that Paul Olini maybe was the right person, a business guy, mm-hmm. to lead Intel when they were behind and refocus them on their core competencies. Mm-hmm. But I think ultimately, if you want to have a tech company with a vision that's going to you know, move with the market, address the market needs, um, you have to have somebody that is technical, that understands the technology and is really going to drive it. Um, NVIDIA is a great example. AMD is a great example. Mm-hmm. Those are companies that are led by, you know, uh, people with engineering backgrounds that really understand the technology. So um, I think this is a very good move for Intel. Uh, Matter of fact, obviously, uh, I I think even the attitude within Intel has changed. There's some excitement about having Pat coming back. Mm. So it's, I I think overall, this is going to be a good move. Um, How quickly we'll see changes don't know. I, I would say in the first six months, you'll see six to nine months, you'll see some changes in management. Mm-hmm. You know, Pat's no different than anybody else. You're going to see different people come in. You know, he's going to put people in place that he thinks are right. And that's that's appropriate. Right. Um, but I, I also think the timing is good for him because um, they are coming out with new technologies. They do have the Habana AI stuff. They do have uh, the new uh, heterogeneous Alder Lake architecture coming out. You know, they're in a good mood and I are, are a good place right now strategically. Um, I think you're going to see Pat try to build on that very, very quickly. All right, buddy. Thanks again. Okay. Cheers, mate. That was Jim McGregor, Principal Analyst with Tirius Research. We've got a link to his story on the succession at Intel on the podcast episode webpage. ARM has built itself into one of the most critical companies in the electronics business. It designs processing systems and licenses the technology, more commonly referred to as intellectual property or IP. Its IP is used in a large percentage of smartphones, and as time goes on, it's become increasingly popular in an increasing number of other electronic systems as well, including cars. Then, last September, NVIDIA announced it would buy ARM for an eye-watering $40 billion. Global editor Junko Yoshida sat down with ARM's Chet Babla about all of that and more. Babla is the company's vice president in charge of automotive products. So ARM just had the 30th um, birthday in November 2020 this year. Yeah, what an incredible journey, right? 30 years. So yeah. I mean, ARM was started by a handful of engineers who set up office in, in the now famous converted turkey barn in Cambridge. Uh, and fast forward now, and you know we're a multinational corporation with over 6,500 employees globally. Um, we're really proud that our partners have shipped over 180 billion ARM-based chips over these 30 years. So, you know, this is a great opportunity, really, this anniversary to kind of reflect back on where we started uh, and where we find ourselves today. Let's, uh, you know, set our time machine and going back the 30 years and tell me that um, how ARM started 
where it started. Essentially, um, Arm was a spin-out of a small British company called Acorn Computers that was developing uh, personal computers for the mass market at the time. Um, and they found they needed a, a more powerful processor than they were able to um, uh, buy on the commercial market. So they decided to develop their own. They, they based it on the reduced instruction set computer architecture. Um, and ultimately, there was a, an investment by Apple and by VLSI, and it was decided to, to spin out the company as Advanced Risk Machines, or ARM. Um, and so it's incredible, you know, how the company started developing processes for PCs, and now the architecture has become ubiquitous through so many electronic segments today. And, you know, we estimate over 70% of the world's population, you know, uses ARM technology every day. And it's an incredible kind of germination from that initial seed from computing to, to where we find ourselves today. I just want to talk a little bit about automotive, because if I remember correctly, one of the first areas, unbeknownst to many, um, the, the place that ARM actually got a big design win wasn't with TI on the automotive front? Yeah, it's really interesting looking back at ARM's beginnings in automotive. So so we, we've been looking back in our archives as well, and we think it was around about 96, 97, where we were starting to have a lot of discussions with, with various partners in the industry, including TI, Texas Instruments, around how this cool new microprocessor technology, and, and you know specifically it was the ARM 7 TDMI processor, um, and how that could bring value into automotive. So the applications our partners in those early days were talking to us about was uh, things like anti-lock braking, um, uh, electronic stability programs, airbags. These were the areas like late 90s where we were starting to see a lot of partners saying, we think we can deploy this cool new processor technology in the vehicle in these kind of applications. So uh, for sure, TI was definitely one of the first um, uh, that took on technology into automotive. There were several others around the same time as well. So it's quite exciting how, how it all started from that, that early discussion around ARM, ARM 7 TDMI processor. So that was sort of the humble beginning of ARM's foray into the automotive. How has um, things uh, evolved then? Yeah, and, and it's been such a journey of evolution as well. Mm. I mean, it, I think we, we've seen you know, how our vehicles have started to um, integrate more and more electronics, and it's pervading the vehicle, like not just the control systems, not just the engine management, but also coming inside the, the cabin. You know, we've seen these incredibly immersive cockpit experiences that we have, the touchscreen displays, multiple displays. We're starting to see the safety, you know, that's, you know, the ADAS that we're, we're seeing rolling out and being mandated through regulation that's really helping to make our vehicles and our roads safer. So we're starting to see this move from, you know, just a, a humble CPU to starting to see a need for GPUs, for ISP, for machine learning, how all of this kind of heterogeneous computers now pervaded into the vehicle. And it's something that ARM, you know, is really proud that we've been able to respond to those requests from the ecosystem, from the silicon partners, the tier ones, the OEMs who are saying, we've got these great new use cases, but we need the foundational technology to make it a reality. So it's been a great journey for us to be part of with all of this foundational heterogeneous compute. Yeah. Let me ask you this though, uh, in the very beginning, um, the you uh, briefly mentioned that the, the the where the arm was used in things like 
airbag, right? Controller. Yeah. And those were the, used to be the domains of the MCUs, microcontroller. Every chip company had its own microcontroller and, uh, you know, they're happy with it, right? So what made the change from the uh, proprietary MCUs to uh, used to the sort of ARM-based uh, microprocessor architecture. How did it happen? How did it spread? Yeah, great question. And I, I think there's a few elements to that. I think part of it was just there was this incredible, uh, insatiable appetite for driving low-power capability into the electronics, and the ARM um, architecture was particularly well-suited to that. But also, I think if we look beyond that, you know, as a company, we were very flexible. We were getting a lot of requests around certain quality requirements that we were keen to adapt our processes to make sure we could meet those quality requirements for the automotive partners. Um, and we were just flexible in how we worked. And I think the core on business model of licensing plus royalty, which is basically all around shared success, Partners just understood that and really kind of it resonated with them. So I think it's those multiple elements coming together. And then, of course, it becomes a self-fulfilling kind of prophecy because you start to build an ecosystem. And then, you know, we're working with tooling partners, you know, other parts of, of the electronics um, value chain. And it starts to develop that ecosystem that you've just mentioned. So I think it was a combination of those those elements of how ARM was working, how the architecture was so well suited to low power, our um, uh, ability to be flexible and to meet some of these quality needs. So it was, it was those elements all kind of coming together that I think really started to drive ARM as a great choice in automotive. Right. So looking forward, though, I mean, you guys had a, a huge announcement uh, 2020 that is uh, your being acquired by NVIDIA. What would that entail for the future of ARM? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think there's a few elements here. And, you know, we, we're we really excited by the announcement. We think it's going to be really positive, extremely beneficial to the whole ecosystem. And, you know, if you look at the um, uh, Dev Summit keynote that Simon and Jensen did, it really gives a great idea of how we think you know, some of the parts can help the whole ecosystem um, going forward. But from a, you know, from my point of view, from, from the automotive business's point of view, actually, we're still really focused on seeing how can we make compute ubiquitous in the automotive space? You know, still today, some of the ADAS capabilities, some of the cockpit experiences are preserve of middle and, and high tier vehicles. So our focus is very much on how do we keep driving that compute down? So, you know, these great experiences in the vehicle safety can be um, uh, available to everyone, not just the select few. So, so we're very much focused on continuing to support our ecosystem in that. You know, when you look at the automotive industry 2021 and beyond, uh, as somebody who is responsible for the automotive market chat, um, what do you see as the biggest challenge? for ARM, but also for ARM's um, partners in ecosystem? What are the big agenda yeah. that you look forward to? Yeah, great, great question again. And, and, and again, you know, if you take a step back, uh, and we've spoken about this before, globally, there's so many challenges that society is facing, urbanization, digitalization, climate change, number of fatalities on the roads. And that's what's really amazing about the automotive industry going forward. We've got a real chance 
to address some of these with the technologies and the decisions that we make of what's deployed into automotive, how we work together as an industry to help solve some of these challenges, you know, electrification. It's not just a pastime, it's real. You know, recently I had an interview with a senior vice president at Volkswagen. He said, from our point of view, done deal, no debate around electrification. So there's a lot of innovation though. We still have to drive around how do we make the electronics efficient? How do we make the batteries last longer? How do we control the batteries? Great you know, area for the industry to coalesce around. Safety, we've discussed it a lot. You've covered it extensively. ADAS is so important. We want to drive that number of road fatalities down. And we've got to, but we have to do it by looking, okay, the compute, the sensing, you know, it needs a lot of processing. What are the right architectures that we need to work on as an industry to make sure we can deliver that safety, but we do it in a power efficient way. So we're not draining down the batteries that are supposed to be there driving the vehicle forward. So there's so much exciting activity around safety. And then lastly, of course, you know, in the old days when we used to be sat on traffic jams before uh, COVID, you know, we wanted our cars to be a really welcoming environment. And that means having a great digital cockpit, as we're now calling it. How can we have that great immersive experience in the vehicle? And there's lots of things of bringing the, the goodness that we've seen in the mobile world, bringing that inside the car in terms of uh, passenger and driver immersion. So for me, they're, a, they're the kind of key areas that the industry has got so much work to do, uh, and we need to do it in a collaborative uh, way to get there. So just to add to what you just said about the uh, electrification, it just dawned on me that um, the fact that EV has a great impact. It, 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 building EV for OEMs means that uh, everything that goes inside the car needs to be low power because it has a direct impact on the mileage the battery-powered vehicle can uh, uh, can can generate right. So tell me, this this is kind of interesting that the how the arm uh, launched itself as a successful um, company in the smartphone mobile world is coming back to the EV world because again, this is like dual power. Is that the, the, that's going to be the key element? Yeah, totally. In an ice world, internal combustion engine world power has tended to be a secondary consideration. But as we move towards a, a world of electric vehicles, you know, we all know that uh, range anxiety is really top of mind for consumers when they're thinking about buying EVs. So, you know, what, what we really don't want is to have an incredible electric vehicle design, um, but the electronics ends up consuming so much of the battery capacity that basically you're, you're hobbling your, your journey distance before you've even started because the electronics is going to end up consuming so much of that capacity. Uh, and, you know, this is where the ARM architecture is so well suited to, to this future world of um, electric vehicles, inherently low power. So that helps to address some of these concerns around power consumption. But there's, you know, also secondary benefits of having a low power architecture as well. The thermal design becomes simpler, the physical design, the enclosures, housings become simpler. Um, you know, and th these are really direct benefits of, of deploying in an energy efficient architecture. And it's, it's one of the reasons why we found OEMs are particularly keen to talk about their future electronics architectures. They want to understand what the foundational compute technology um, can enable so they can, you know, start planning 
what their future electric vehicle platforms um, should should look like in the future. So it's really exciting. You know, we, we enabled this low power world of portable consumer devices because of our, our you know foundational architecture capabilities and you know the future of mobility is similarly also something that we think we can help um, you know really influence in a positive way because of that low power all right thanks thanks chet thanks Janko. great to talk to you that was chet badla from arm for anyone looking for more information about electric vehicles we've got links on the podcast episode webpage to a two-part series of stories explaining why they're inevitable. They're called Electric Vehicles, Not If, But When and How Fast. It's parts one and two. That wraps our weekly briefing for the week ending January 23rd. Thank you for listening. The weekly briefing is available on all the major podcast platforms, including Android, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. But if you get to us via our website at www.eetimes.com slash podcasts you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned this podcast is produced by ee times it was engineered by taylor marvin and greg mccray at coop studios the segment producer was katie huss i'm brian santo see you next week